Hey folks, it's the last episode of How to Grow a Whole Family, sort of. I'm going to do this in two parts. This one's called Family is an Open Circle. I want to close out with how we should arrange our relationships, which I get sounds really dumb and artificial on one hand, like you want me to map out my friendships? That's stupid. You can't force love, right? It has to be organic. Well, here's the crazy thing. In this weird paradoxical world that we live in, being organic doesn't happen naturally anymore. You get what I'm saying? If you go to the grocery store and you're unintentional about the food that you pick out and you just pick something on a whim, are you more likely to pick up something organic? I'm guessing not. Because it takes more intention and effort now to be real than to be genetically modified. You know what I'm saying? It's not the norm. So if you're not intentional about your time, screens and market forces will own you and you'll end up scrolling and watching mindless YouTube videos for hours, right? And so it goes with our relationships. When's the last time you accidentally ended up at a table eating great food and drinking and laughing and playing games and telling bad jokes with your closest friends all in a room without having arranged it? It just doesn't happen anymore, maybe a thousand years ago, but not today. And so it goes with a great date that you might take your wife on. So when it comes to the bigger picture of our friendships, so often it's like, well, I'll just hang out with whoever I like right around me this week, whoever I happen to run into. But our social integration and our deep relationships are so important. They're the number one predictor of quality and quantity of life. And they have ripple effects into the health of not only ourselves and our friends, our family, our society, and our political health, and I would say the health of the planet. Now, speaking of the planet, let me give you a little bit of global social history. There are about six to 7,000 living languages in the world. And what a language represents is really important. These are groups of people who split off and did life on their own for so long that over generations they created their own closed-off culture and language. Now think about what this means. If you could survive on your own, the need to communicate with the other breaks down. People disconnect. They quit talking over generations, so much so that after a while, you know, language will evolve as it does continually, and it will evolve in these isolated communities where we see this phenomenon around the world that in temperate places, such as rainforest, where there's an abundance of natural food, you get a ton of different languages because everybody can provide for themselves without having to go far and wide and communicate with the other without having to sacrifice to keep the communication lines open. But then, in cold and harsh places where there's very few languages, because resources are scant, uh, take, for example, in northern Europe or Siberia, there are very few languages. There's about 200 languages native to Europe altogether. But over 800 languages are spoken on the little island of Papua New Guinea. So... A lot of migration happened before language development, and a lot of it happened after. But we get this beautiful patchwork of language and culture around the world that we came from. So if you map it out in sort of a family tree, the, the linguists call it this language tree. And in our language tree, we come from the Nordic languages, and in, in that it splits off into two main branches – the Indo-European, which is by far the biggest, and then there are the other Uralic languages, Scandinavian, Russia. But the Indo-European splits off, and part of it, the branch heads east towards India, and then a part of that, the, the other branch heads towards Europe, and obviously we come from the European tree. But you see this fractal pattern 
of languages that split and split as people migrated and separated around the globe. Now, there's an ancient mythic story that we popularly know as the Tower of Babel that came out of the book of Genesis in the Bible. And it goes something like this, where people were together in one place and they were trying to do something together. They all spoke one language. They were all this community working together but they were going about it the wrong way. They were about to royally screw it up. In fact, story told it like this. The humans are going to think that they're gods if they work together. And so it says the gods came down and spread them out and made them go to different places and develop different languages. So even the ancients had this sense that language and working together was so powerful that we could use it to build something really incredible, but at the same time, with the wrong intention, built on wrong motives, could be so destructive. Now, here we are at one of the most fascinating times in world history. So it's just been in the last millennium or so that we have begun to reverse the trend of spreading out and claiming new territory and producing different languages and evolving to different languages. We're losing languages now and consolidating more people than ever are speaking fewer languages than ever. And in 2013, it was the first time in the history of our planet. Really big event happened, nobody noticed, but it was the year that more people began to live in urban areas than not. And by 2050, they say that about 90% of us will live in cities. What's happening is incredible, and you and I are at a really incredible, fascinating time. Because we've basically maxed out planet Earth with our 7,000 circles of people who no longer can geographically spread out. We had built these connection pockets with them, and now things are changing, and life is having to be done a different way. Now, most anthropologists believe uh, that physical scarcity, of course, drove migrations apart. But you, you think about what's in that. We can at least in some part know that the driving force between all of that long-term separation was conflict or the avoidance of conflict. We didn't know how to solve with words and language and scarcity and agreement. And so it was easier than working together. It was easier to move to a place with new resources that you could claim for your own and sort of claim that new space, start a revolution, do something new, or conquer the people in your space rather than to figure out how to work together to provide for everyone so that justice can happen and everyone's needs are met. Much more difficult to engage and problem solve, especially when you're just surviving. And I don't mean to make light of the surviving because, y'all, they were going to die out on the plains if they didn't do what they do. But this is our history that we come from, and it's worth thinking about because we can't spread out anymore. So when you look at a globe that is geographically where the people have maxed out planet Earth, the only way forward there from that point can no longer be disconnection. It can't be to keep splitting and going out on your own in your own pursuit of happiness, in your own pursuit of your own territory and your own things. So the last 3,000 years have been pretty bloody, right? <laughs> the last century has been the bloodiest ever because... 
we're still operating so often out of the norm, which is a natural reflex of a fight or flight mechanism in our brain replicated at large scales in society that produces this fear-based kill-or-be-killed mentality of conquering that has produced wars and slavery and indentured service and the loser submits to the winner and does it their way and the most votes wins and my red button is bigger than your red button the biggest strongest superpower overcomes the others the pox romana whoever rebels is crushed or even in capitalism the best business with the most innovation and the best marketing campaign should win especially when they have the most capital this is currently the story of planet earth right it has been one narrative that has driven our change for the last few thousand years now see people naturally instinctively think in our primitive modes of thought there's two options fight or flight i get fed or he gets fed kill or be killed either you get the job or i get it i either fight for mine or i run to see another day but you know I think we have this instinctive thing down inside of us that knows there's a better way to live, right? It's not always a zero-sum game. There may be a better way than kill or be killed because we've seen glimpses of it throughout history. And I want to talk about that way. What if we could build something together sort of like the Tower of Babel, but it didn't have to be destructive or ego-driven or built just to make our name great? See, that would take a fundamentally different kind of human than the one who lives by the old tribal narrative that we created, right? In, in that story, the Tower of Babel, people just began to dominate and use people and subjugate people based on a dominance hierarchy, and the top got the credit and the glory, and they got to live in the palace, and life only got worse for the bottom. What if market forces weren't the only thing that could bring us together? That would actually take a different type of person. So if we're going to move forward, have an opportunity to create something brand new, make the world a better place, not spiral off into all of the negativity that you often feel like this is headed towards, this is not going to be about going back to our old tribal ways of just associating with people who look like us. This is about being a different way. It's not about being socially promiscuous and everybody has to be extroverts. This is about a fundamentally different way to live. So here we are, humans on planet Earth, almost 8 billion of us. By the way, I could pick up my phone and call over 5 billion of those right now. We're in this weird place and we've developed this evolutionary hardwiring for relationship circles and we are in a hyper-connected world that is pressing in on us and instead of dividing and creating more and more subcultures we're now having to bridge gaps we're now melting culture into a pot and all of the large-scale relational shortcuts that have been taken over the past hundred thousand years or so are having to be bridged that comes with a lot of mess now there is a story much later in the narrative of the Bible that was an event that happened in the book 
of Acts way later, and it was after Jesus had left and the early church was on its own. And there's this really critical moment where all of these pilgrims were together in Jerusalem from all over the world. And the writer tells it like this, some of the Jesus followers started speaking among them. Now there were people all over the world here. They had from different languages who had all come together and they all spoke their own language. But when they were in this place, there was like a different spirit that came over the crowd. There was they called it a holy spirit. It was a game changer in the story and I think it could be a game changer in the world. It was this spirit of divine love. The driving principle here that held this group of people together was love and care. They had a a number one, they called it the royal law. It was their number one law of their community, and it was love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's simple, but it takes a whole lot of trust. It takes a whole lot of overcoming fear and not being driven by it. It takes a whole lot to overcome the disconnection. It requires a spirit of abundance, even whenever it looks like We're living in a world of scarcity. Like you have to trust that there's going to be enough for everybody if you're going to love everybody as yourself. Otherwise, you're going to die. These followers were, they were told the story of whenever their leader, Jesus, there was this story that got passed around that he had taken a tiny bit of food and he fed 5,000 people. And that was a really fundamental foundational story for them because it showed that they believed that if you work together, that overcomes the, the, the scarcity that you think is there, that there's going to be some sort of divine or otherwise some sort of blessing that would come into that, whether it's miraculous or whether it's just the fact that the sum of the whole is more than the parts. It's that principle that when you work together, rather than trying to do it yourself, you end up discovering all these other sorts of ways that you can be provided for. So the story of Acts goes like this. You you got all these Jesus followers and all of these nationalities. They began to hear these love-filled people speak in their own language, which is, you know what that's saying, right? It's this really deep way of saying there's a spirit of humanity and love and cooperation that brings people together and unites them that's more powerful than the forces of differences that drove people apart. It's sort of the anti-Tower of Babel that whenever you bring people together for a good purpose of common good and not subjugating one another, that when you bring people together to bring healing and community among them, if we come together and love each other like that, there would be actually more than enough for everyone, even though you can't see how with your eyes, maybe. In fact, one of their sayings was, seek first this type of kingdom and Everything else is going to be added to you. That the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. That the power of connection can be thick enough to overcome any differences that may incite fear in us to polarize us and create enemies. If we work together and we sacrifice for each other first, this ancient story says that when this happens, all sorts of provision might take place. So what would you do with a world of thousands of isolated people groups and geography demands that they can't spread out anymore? You have to turn to something greater. And that something is love. There's another way. It's love and sacrifice. And now at the core of relationships has to be love and sacrifice. This is not natural because it's not hardwired into us 
evolutionarily, we are wired to survive and to do it in tribes. But the only way forward has to be something where we control what's going on inside of us instead of it controlling us. We're not talking about gushy love. We're not talking about attraction. We're not talking about fascination. Love is such a diverse word. I mean, the kind of love that recognizes the divine humanity in another person is just as special and just as valuable and just as human as that which is in you. That's the core. That's what every relationship that's going to be healthy and feed into a healthier world has to be built on. So to love people well, to unite people, to start bringing the world together, there's always got to be an openness. Margin for somebody else who has a need or is lonely or doesn't have a friend to join your circle. The moment that you get a closed off circle is the moment that you isolate yourself from the rest of the world and the moment that you stop offering the rest of the world life and the moment that you close yourself off to any possibility that new life comes into your circle. We call it a click. It is no different than an old tribe except for these aren't based on genetics and you can't obviously see them, but you know when there's a click in the room, right? They're so often, they're based on power and who I want to be in my network that could benefit me. And so it's no wonder that in a world with a tribal mentality, unchecked, in a melting pot of a world, we've still created all of these separations between wealthy and poor, and we have cliques over here and over there that you feel like you can't get into or you can't get out of. You, you ever feel like politically people are isolated on islands, like these narrow political tribes, and you're like, I, I don't really want to be a part of any of that. It's the 21st century. How can you be so closed off? But you can be totally closed off in a hyper-connected world if you're still living by old tribal mentalities. We call this bubbles, right? Now, psychologically and socially, we need bubbles. But societally and globally, we can't move forward anymore in narrow, tribal, closed-off bubbles. So what does this mean? It means we need to create a different kind of family. We have this board on our fireplace that's our family theme board. And it's just a one by eight that's been painted a whole bunch. Every year we pick a theme word for our family, just one word. And a few years ago, uh, we chose the word, the six of us chose the word family. So each of the six of us uh, got to paint a letter. Our kids wanted to paint a letter. And so we decided that the way to do it, we painted all the letters in cursive so that they were connected each to the other. But then we painted a line from the beginning of the F and from the end of the Y, and we painted them around into a circle. But we stopped them short of actually connecting the F to the Y because we have a saying that family is an open circle. It's a circle that you're in or you're out. You have to have commitment. It's not just touchy-feely. Like, I'm coming home every single day even if I don't feel like it. There are currently six people, and you know if you're in this family or out. There's a pretty hard line, and not everybody can just come in as they wish because then we lose our significance as members, but it can also never totally close off because then we become a clique, right? And then we start to die. If it's going to be organic, it needs space and openness to something new. And it also needs diversity. 
the thing that compels me about the story that I told you a minute ago in Acts, and one of the reasons I shared it, was because of the diversity. Now, unfortunately, it's not the case today. And if I if I mention the the Christian story, it may make you nauseous because you're like, whoa, Christians are the least diverse people on the planet. I mean, Sunday morning is the most segregated hour. Yes, it is, and this is horrible. And this is why I'm telling you a story from 2,000 years ago instead of a story from today, because. What we see is not often what the story meant. But if there's one thing that our tribes 4,000 years ago didn't have that we have today, it's diversity. And if we're going to grow and move forward, we have to embrace it as our strength. And we know that. But think about the relationships you're in. Are, are, do you look more like the people 2,000 years ago? Or the the Christians today who are segregated, what does your social circle look like? Now, thankfully, our social circles look like, to me, that they're getting more and more diverse, as they should be. But if you were to map it out, what would your circles look like? Now, this is something that I really want us to think about for the rest of this episode. So before we get there, let's talk about the kind of people we are and how we're wired because how we're wired is based on all of where we came from. It's based on our evolutionary history. Now, let's move down to a personal level, and let's talk about your circles in your little corner of the world where you've been planted. Obviously, you've got closer friends, and then you've got acquaintances, and then you've got people you hardly know, right? So different levels of intimacy. You may have done activities before. In fact, I did one uh, today at a training where you draw concentric circles with friends in each level. And of course, you know, the closer people go closer to you and then your outside layers of friends go on the outside. And so there was a sociologist named Robin Dunbar who came up with a theory. He had a team studying uh, primate brains and they theorized based on the, the number of neurons or the brain size, how social that primate would be, and they got pretty good at predicting this. The bigger the brain, the more complex, of course, the more social, the more overall efficiency, because working together is better. And there's a there became a curve that he put on a graph. And from that, he went ahead and realized, you know what, I could go ahead and predict where humans would be on this. So based on our brain size, he predicted that humans in all of our circles of relationships could keep relationship and be friends with and feel intimacy with at some level about 150 total people. So he figured it would be between 100 and 200. And this became to be known as Dunbar's number. So this is a, like the level of intimacy that if you walked into a bar and you saw a friend, you'd go sit by them and you'd have a drink uninvited. This is not the Facebook friend that you have, because I know you have like 800 Facebook friends. This is not the one that you have that you avoid in the store, right? These are the people that you're actually keeping something alive with. So fascinatingly, this number has sort of made its way into all sorts of social structures throughout history and even today without us intending it. We have created companies and regiments in armies around the world that have been between 100 and 200 people. Church congregations tend to break down after they get to a, a max of about 200 people. He said hunter-gatherer groups in history maxed out about 150 people. Your Christmas card network, fascinatingly, has about 150 total people in it on average. Obviously, some are, some are bigger, some are smaller. Neolithic villages had about 150 people, and I still even see this today. I went to Haiti several times, and whenever you go walking out through the countryside in Haiti, you have all these little villages out in the countryside. And of course, you have like a big area, but then you'll have these little villages within the bigger area. And if you go into one of the little villages, each one of them has a name. And I started 
been noticing there, there are about 150 people in each one of these villages, between 100 and 200 people. And inside that little village, they know each other, let's just say, well, <laughs> they've met. They they know everything about all of the other people in there. They're, they're really close to the others. And then the next little village, it may only be 300 yards away. And they have seen the people in the other village, but they don't really know their stories. They know each other. And so you get this cool little circle of circles with 150-ish people in them, all right? So historically, there's a reason for this. So later, uh, Dunbar and the others came up with this theory of layers based on intimacy, that you would have different layers here, and he predicted that humans would have an inner core of about five closest friends, a second layer with about 10 or more friends, a third layer with about 35 more, so 50 total. So the, the total of each one of them as you move out, the total multiplies by three or so. And so 50 times 3 is 150 in your fourth layer if, is the sum of all of them in between. So they did some studies with uh, data, phone calls over time, and they actually just watched people, uh, this is, no, not unknowingly like the NSA, but they, <laughs> with permission, they took people's phone calls and they did studies on who they spoke to for how long they spoke to them and averaged out over lots of people over 10 years or so. The, the data suggested that people did actually speak to those circles of people about as often as they they thought they would so they would have about that that study came back with about four that would be your best friends and 11 or 12 would be your closest families that you eat with and those actually match up really well with facets of tribal behavior that we find in villages like you would have those circles and then a circle of 30 or 50 would be like your tribe or extended family, which may be about the size of a family reunion today. And then the 130 to 150 would be the size of your village. That would be the size of all of the people that you might have spoken with on the phone in the last couple of years. Now, there's something about these numbers and the level of intimacy that we're able to maintain. And here's the fascinating thing. Your capacity to hold these numbers doesn't typically change. You may only have three people in your inner circle, and I may have five, and there's a reason for this. My number five, though, doesn't change for me, and your three wouldn't change for you. If you lose one, you typically will find another in due time, and you will put that other person in your inner circle. And if somebody in your inner circle moves out, you, uh, you typically move another person in, but if somebody else like moves in and you bring them into your inner circle, you'll eventually crowd one of them out. So this number, actually, this is cool. This varies this with the size of the interplay between two circuits in your brain, uh, in your orbitofrontal cortex, which is up behind your eyes, and then your ventromedial cortex just kind of goes down the side behind your ears. These two circuits the bigger they are and the more interplay there is between them, the larger your network size can be. Because your network size, he says, is based on your ability to understand people's stories at a time. We almost think there's like a peak capacity that you can store and remember other people's stories and they're still fresh enough that you feel enough intimacy to still be close to that person that you might talk to them to understand the state of their mind and therefore empathize with them and therefore be friends with them so we hit this upper limit it doesn't matter how well we're connected we will run out of friend space in our head you know how we've geographically maxed out planet earth We've maxed out our neurons, too. 
Well, we don't stop meeting people, do we? And one thing I can tell you for certain in the 21st century is you're not going to stop meeting new people. We don't live in villages anymore. You're going to brush by thousands and thousands of people. And if we're not careless, we as naturally empathic, caring humans will sort of just attach to whatever stories are around us. Stories like Velcro, right? I mean, they just suck you in. You want to hear them. And I would argue that this is a good thing, but we can't attach to every compelling person or story we hear because, as he says, the amount of social capital you have is pretty fixed. So when you invest in a superficial relationship, it may come at the expense of a more profound one. If you're keeping up with the Secretary of State and where they're traveling this week, who is it that you're not keeping up with closer to home? If you're giving a celebrity with a blue check mark a likey likey heart on Instagram, who are you not patting on the back in real life? One could theoretically find themselves knowing everything about everyone out there and having had to trade away everyone nearby as currency. Is it possible that a world like this could become a world in your head that seems like it's in disarray? Like you're surrounded by people, but you don't feel like you belong to any of it? Like there's no one place that you can go where you're just surrounded by love all the way around? We find ourselves in this weird world where we're all maxed out, and now to be healthy, we have to arrange things. You control your social relationships. You have met your 150 people a long time ago, I'm guessing. And whenever you're trading them away, are you doing it intentionally? See, there's a currency here, and it's called attention. You want to build a relationship? Attention and connection are really expensive but uh, because we can't afford to interact with very many. And if you have limited means, wouldn't it make sense that you would be intentional about the way that you spend it? We're really sophisticated in our structuring of friends in our brain. But sometimes in the world today, it can look like a mess. Um, Dunbar observed that we spend about a, a half of our total social time with our inner five friends, four if you're married. <laughs> and, and so what this says is what you actually probably already knew because of your shared stories, you are becoming like those friends. They have control of about half of what you are transforming towards in your life. Their personalities together are shaping yours. The other half of your time is spent with the next biggest chunk going to the next 10 and then the next 30 and then the, the 150. And to some degree, we are shaped by communities even larger than that. Now, what we're finding out is that those outer layers are really important though. They help stabilize our bigger picture and our connection to the world. So it's not like the circle of 40 or 150 don't matter. Of course they do. They help you dial in to a larger story. So the person that you see like once a week and you just walk by them and you say hi and you shake their hand, that actually matters a lot. And so you also have about probably two to 5,000 people that you recognize their faces. And that might be like the size of a small town. And those people matter too because they give you a sense of security that you're dialed into a place, a locale on planet Earth where you belong. And all of that matters because we not only gain our sense of identity from our outer circles, we indirectly gain them from our medium size and larger circles too. So to be healthy, I would say fully alive to serve at our best potential, 
humans need the safety and security of being planted in concentric circles even while we need the diversity to make our circles strong. So think about your friends. Doubtful that you met any of your friends one-on-one because you usually meet people in circles. If you were to draw out your circles, what would they look like? And I'm guessing you can't do this right now because you're probably in a car or out jogging or something like that, but this is a great activity if you get a moment to do this. Map out your circles. This is an activity that actually spurred on this podcast. It was sort of the genesis of this podcast. I did this a few years ago. Draw out all the circles that you're a part of. So for me, it was like, well, I have a family circle here. Then I have a different family circle over here. This is my wife's family. And then I have a circle over here, this small group that I'm a part of. And then I have a circle over here that's my workplace. And then I have a circle over here that's the, that's the camp of people that I work with in the summer several years ago and I still keep up with. And then I have these friends from the old town that I used to live in. And I have all of these circles, right? And imagine your life is sort of like this too. How many of them overlap with each other? And some of your circles, I'm sure, overlap. And some of your circles overlap a whole lot. Some of your circles may be inside of bigger circles. You may be in a group that's in a larger group. You may be in a department at work. Now, obviously, we're talking about the ideal. Some of us are idealists and some of us are realists. And you're like, come on, how does this apply to real life? But the more concentric your circles are, the more safety, the more security that you have, and the easier it is to thrive. You just always have to balance that out with a diversity so that you don't shut off and become a clique. And so my circles are all over the place. I'm in no danger of shutting off to people. Matter of fact, I run the opposite risk. I discovered a couple of years ago that I'm a really clean person when it comes to my space and my house and my vehicle because I purge all the time. But I have been a relationship hoarder. So I have tried to keep these circles alive even across moves and in different places and different schools and different churches and workplaces and things like that. And I mean, like I love and value my friends and I'm finding myself spinning all these plates and have this thing where one circle, one friend in one circle invites you to something and, and then your boss needs you to do something. You're like, well, you don't really understand. And, and it's like, well, hold on. I have six other people or six other circles where the people think that like they're my only circle. You, you ever been this way before? You, you may be connected and attached to all these places and you're just spread really, really thin. Trying to feed all of those relationships can be exhausting. And the last thing you want to do is be like, well, I chose them over you because the assumption is always, well, you just chose them because they're cooler, right? Which is not always true. And isn't it true? that you can have 16 different circles that you're a part of and none of them where you have great, deep, life-giving relationships. You can never feel that sense of security and belonging that you need to feel your to fill your own soul, right? And so I'm really happy to advise you not to do what I've done. It's kind of like an alcoholic telling you, stay far away, don't do what I did. But think about your circles and make sure that as you are going through life and as you're changing over time, as you're developing new friendships, as you are paying attention to where you're giving your attention to, are your circles, if they're way too spread out, are they coming together? If they're like mine, are you bringing unity to them? Or if your circles are completely concentric and you're just like totally shut off from the outside world, is there a chance that you need to bring some new life and diversity into your circles? All right, so I've got six questions you can ask yourself, and then I want to close the series out. Um, 
One, are there any relationships that you need to let go of? Because you may have made a relationship 10 years ago that you're like the only one keeping it alive. And you're like, why, why am I still feeding this thing? Why am I still calling that person that's in that other town? And they haven't even called me and I've been calling them the last 10 times. Why am I still doing that? There may be relationships that you just know you need to let go of because they're not healthy and they're not productive. And it may take a little bit of courage to let go of them. And then obviously there are some relationships that are really close by and and they need to be transformed rather than let go of. But are there any relationships that you need to let go of? Uh, Are there any relationships that you're spending way too much time investing and maybe that person should be in an outer circle and instead you've got them right here in an inner circle? And maybe you need to just let that be what it's going to be and you don't need to spend so much of your time because really whenever it comes down to it, maybe you're just trying to get them to like you because that person seems to have more power or could offer you something. And maybe it's not a really healthy reason. So are there any relationships that you need to loosen up on? Okay. Uh, Second question. Are you a part of a small circle who's committed to doing life together more than ever? One of the things that's dying in our world is personal loyalty. Like we're more loyal to companies now and less loyal to people. You, you got like loyalty cards in your wallet, right? You're either an Apple or Google person. Like how many companies do I have to be a member with, right? What ecosystem do I have to be a part of? And all of the market world has these ways of drawing us in and making us loyal to them. And then a lot of times we find that we don't have any people that we're actually loyal to. Do you have those people? And if not, like, could you create that? Because that would be your inner core. That would be the most important. Half of your time would be spent with just a few people. That could have a huge, huge impact on your life. So could you, is there anybody in an outer circle that you would need to bring towards an inner circle? Third question I would ask you, do your circles have diversity? Every circle needs to be as diverse as possible. You know, if you were to plant things in organic garden and you really wanted to to make it the most efficient and the best garden possible, we actually now know that you just need to pair up plants that are different than other plants that can supplement the soil and provide different things for the different plants so that they can be planted together because some plants grow better with other plants there. And people are the same way. Personalities provide balance. An introvert may need somebody that's an extrovert to offset their personality and vice versa. But do you have racial diversity? Because if not, I'm guessing that you found yourself in bubbles where you feel completely isolated from another racial group. What about cultural diversity? Because you could have racial diversity and still in our melting pot of a culture, sometimes we lack cultural diversity like economic diversity. People that fundamentally like grew up in a very different world than you grew up in. Does your circles have diversity? And then I want to say, like, are your circles open or closed? Because if your circle is too open and everybody can get in it and anybody can leave it at one time, you don't have that sense of loyalty and security. But if your circles are too closed off, then they start to die. So if you're, are, your circles, are your circles open and overflowing to the next? Every circle, if it's healthy, should have something to give. I should have something to give to the people around me. And my family The six of us here at my house, if we're healthy, we actually have something to offer the other families without draining from them. 
And then you could say that the same thing with the larger circles. This is a sign of health. When, when a plant goes into dormancy, uh, it, it's not only unable to give life through healthy leaves to the world around it, it's also unable to receive life. Right? So if you find that your circles are starting to shut down because they've been closed off for a really long time, and it's been like two, three, four years since you've had any new people enter into your circle, maybe it's time to let somebody else in, to invite somebody else in. Um, if your circle isn't open to outsiders and there's a problem, something's unhealthy and you're going into scarcity mode and other people will see you as a click even though you may have sworn that you would never become that. Now, there are seasons also if your circle has been open for a long time that you need to close off in order to fully process and grow your relationships with your friends. But keep that flow going back and forth so that you are always living. Uh, the next thing I would ask is like, how concentric are your circles? Now, this is probably the hardest one because you need circles for your own sense of security and personal health and to, to, to give birth to loyalty and camaraderie. But this is an incredibly difficult thing to do in a world where we're constantly moving to take jobs in new places. And we're constantly doing things with people from all walks of life in our melting pot. But it's not that we completely abandon concentric circles. It's that we have a new attitude of valuing diversity when we make our concentric circles of friends. It's an attitude of listening to people rather than demanding that people listen to you. It's an attitude of realizing that differences aren't threats and that we are proving every day that we can overcome. And then the sixth thing I already touched on, is there enough life in my circle that it is overflowing to the bigger circles around it? Because see, you know, you have this sense that you have a purpose that's just bigger, you know? Like, this is why we get so connected to the global story at large of what's going on in the world, because we want to be a part of it. And so often we will bypass all of the ways, uh, all of the, the, the people in between us and the larger story, but there's actually a circle of us around us that could be a bigger part of the bigger story. So what I'm seeing here a lot of times is a bunch of dying cells that have no life to give to the larger body. And when the larger body goes into scarcity mode, it starts to drain even more from the cells that are making it up. You know, life actually comes from the local level, don't you? Life isn't born at the superstore or the large corporation or the megachurch or the city. Life was born in the wild, in the small places, in the local places where people drew their life from the earth. People who got life had it to give, right? Your food still comes from the farms, right? Amazon doesn't give us life. They're just a distribution center for where it came from or where products came from. Life was born in the small places where people made those products. Life is born on farms and in small groups of people that are coming together with ideas and innovation. That's where the birthplace of life is. It's not in the centralized places where we so often look. Amazon needs the little factories. We need the farmers. Governments need people who are born in strong circles. Higher forms of power are always fed by the lower, and it's the lower forms where the life is born. 
we, we need each other's small circles and families to be strong so that our collective society can be alive. And if you find that your own family is dying, maybe consider opening it up and letting someone else in or closing it down so that it can be more healthy because we need your family to grow. The rest of us need you. The world now more than ever needs family.